Amen. Well, it's a joy that I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel, and Daniel will get started this morning. Maybe just, uh, uh, I'll introduce Daniel to you. It's a wonderful book. I would have to say it's captivated my heart for months now and so many hours that it just has captivated me. I think the truth is, is ever since I came 11 years ago, I have been eyeing the book of Daniel. And so here we go. Part of the reasons there's so much in the book, but I really have been eyeing the, the doctrine of last things, eschatology. I mean, we believe if the Lord spoke the beginning into existence in the book of Genesis, then we believe that God knows how it's going to finish. And so Daniel is going to give us that eschatology. I thought because I've been in John and then I was in Ephesians, I'm going to be in Daniel. And uh, I'm just excited. As you know, there's 12 chapters there. I'm probably going to say buckle up. It will probably take us about 40 messages. I'm going to go quick. I'm going to hit it hard. And, uh, but it's narrative. And so it's not as pithy as the book of Ephesians, which is an epistle. This is a narrative. I don't want to skip anything, but we'll probably be in it for a year, okay? But I'm just excited because it's Old Testament, and that balances what we've done in the New Testament. I've also done the book of Jonah, but it's just great to return to that. I think we need this book. I would say I need this book. I would say that you need this book. And you young people especially need this book. I was thinking of that scripture in Daniel 1.8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the question, had a man tell me yesterday at the Lundy wedding that it was that verse in Daniel 1.8 that he would not defile himself that changed his life as he headed into the country of Vietnam to be part of the battle over there, that God preserved him in a mighty way. And he used this in Daniel 1.8. So I just, my heart is full. I think this is going to be wonderful. I'm excited also to get to Daniel 9 in particular, which explains the 70 weeks and what the future looks like. I mean, this book is going to cover so much. I don't want you to miss it. And I want you to be here, and of course, uh, we'll look at that together. But look with me. Let me just read Daniel 1, 1 through 7. We'll see where we can get today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both to the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature of the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And the end of it, 
At that time, they were to stand before the king, and among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. May God bless his scripture. The great Hebrew scholar by the name of Charles Feinberg, who was actually MacArthur's Hebrew grammar teacher at Talbot so many years ago, said this on the book of Daniel. He said, Daniel is unquestionably the key to all biblical prophecy. And I thought, what a statement. We value prophecy. We value eschatology. Feinberg, one of the leading renowned scholars in his day, said it is the key to all biblical prophecy. Daniel, certainly, beloved, is the most comprehensive and sweeping prophetic revelation of the Old Testament. What Daniel gives us is a sweep of human history beginning from the captivity all the way to the person of Christ and all the way to the second coming. In fact, there's a phrase in the New Testament called the times of the Gentiles. We'll start with that phrase in just a moment. But when Judah was taken into captivity, the time of the Gentiles began and it will go all the way until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say to you, as I said to my own heart, you cannot understand the book of Revelation, okay, apart from the book of Daniel. In fact, the book of Revelation chapters 4 through 19 is a commentary on the events of Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9. And I think it's important that we know this because remember when 2 Peter and Peter was writing and he talked about the destruction of this earth and how it would be burned up and demolished and he said all these things will come to pass And what sort of people ought you to be in godliness? So in light of where we are, in light of where we are headed, the theme is going to be godliness, as Peter said. John, 1 John said that everyone who has his mind fixed on his second coming purifies himself. So this is going to be intensely practical for our own lives for the purpose of holiness and purity. Daniel's going to answer this question. How did we get here? And I even mean today. He's going to answer that. He's going to answer this question. What is wrong with our world? He's going to answer this question. How does it all end? He's going to answer this question, how do we remain faithful to God in a hostile world? He's going to give us hope. How do we live courageously in a corrupt world? And many, many other questions. Hey, let's, let's dive in. Let's introduce this book just for a moment. Who is the author? Who is the author? Now, that is obvious, and I think it seems obvious to you, but Daniel is the author, 
And Daniel is the main character of all the events that are described in this book. He's the author, and I'll show you in a minute why I have to say that. He identifies himself as the author. Look over at chapter 7. Let me just show you this just as we look at a broad lens this morning. It's important, and it will come out in just a second. It says there in Daniel, right at the beginning of verse 1 in the vision of the four beasts, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions Uh, Daniel saw the dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote them the dream down and he told us some of the matter. Daniel declared 7-2, I saw in the vision, you know, in my vision by the night and behold the four winds of heaven and earth were stirring up the great sea. I saw in my vision. It's Daniel is the author. Look at verse 28 of chapter 7. He will state it again. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. It's Daniel. Uh, A couple more, chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, in 8.1, after which, after that which appeared to me at the first, and I, Daniel again, saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I mean, it just goes on. Look down at chapter 8 again, verse 15. He says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Maybe I'll stop there. There's a host of others. Daniel, make no mistake about it, is the author What's fascinating about Daniel is that he lived most of his life in this country of Babylon. So once he was taken away, the rest of his life was in Babylon. We think he lived about 85 years. In fact, look again at, it says in 1-2, where it says that he, he besieged, 1-1, one, one, he, bese- he came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. We'll talk just in a moment there. Daniel was taken. And then if you glance down in your eyes at Daniel 1-21, it says, and Daniel was there in Babylon, 1-21, until the first year of King Cyrus. It's fascinating. He spent 70 years of his life in Babylon And at the conclusion of those 70 years, uh, Israel uh, would return to the land. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he besieges it, he takes takes some with him, but then Israel, according to prophecy in Jeremiah, will return to the land. But what's neat about Daniel's life is it's marked by faith. It's marked by his refusal to compromise. The man himself is a man of integrity in the midst of a cesspool of sin, in the midst of a cesspool of idolatry. In fact, his very name means this, 
Daniel will, his name Daniel means God will judge. God will judge. That's the meaning of his name. He is a statesman in a pagan society. I like that. Sometimes people don't even classify Daniel as a prophet. The Jewish people put his writing in a section called the writings, but we know him as a prophet, but he wasn't always saying, thus saith the Lord. He was a statesman in a pagan society. Or to put it another way, he was God's man in the White House. I couldn't find one negative characteristic in all of the Bible about this man. In fact, just the opposite. In Daniel 9.23, Gabriel came and said to Daniel, quote, I have come to tell you uh, to, this to you, for you are greatly loved. An angel in chapter 10 and verse 11 and 19 said, you are a man of high esteem and greatly loved. And though he's not listed by name, you think it's probably him, right? In Hebrews 11.33, it's speaking of the heroes of faith and it says, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, attained promises, and shut the mouth of what? Lions. Doesn't say Daniel, but likely in Hebrews 11.33, that is Daniel. Daniel is the author, okay? Our Lord, speaking of Daniel in Matthew 24, verse 15 in the Olivet Discourse, describing the events of Daniel 9, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet. So listen, if our Lord called him the prophet, and it was spoken through Daniel the prophet, here under that first category, who is the author? It's Daniel. But secondly, and here's where the the, the, the crux comes in for a few. Uh, when was Daniel written? Now you're opening your Bible, it kind of falls in the middle. When was it written? And maybe another way to say it, what is the date of Daniel? And this is very crucial. So I'm not just trying to give information to you. You have to understand this so you understand how people attack the book today. Daniel, by all conservative scholars, was written in the 6th century B.C. It was written probably right at the end of his life in 530 B.C. This has been held by the church all the way up through the 18 centuries of this, of this country and around the globe. And then it began to be attacked. And how it was attacked was this way. Liberal critics date Daniel not in the 6th century. They date it in the 2nd century. They don't date it at 530, which is universally held. And there's many reasons why he wrote in that time, because that's the time in which Daniel lived. But the critics want to give it a 2nd century 165 B, uh, excuse me, 165 B.C. date 
in the Maccabean period at the time of Antiochus Epiphany. I mean, liberal critics see Daniel not as a miraculous foretelling of unseen future events, but it's written, if it is in the second century, by an unknown author looking back at the events that have already taken place. Listen, beloved, I just think this. This book is attacked. And I think it's attacked because it's so crucial. For you can be sure that this book is going to be attacked because of what it holds inside of it. And indeed it is. And it is viciously attacked. I think the essence of writing the book in the second century is that doesn't make Daniel the author. And if you don't recognize the 6th century, then you've got somebody in the 2nd century looking back and saying, oh, somebody, not Daniel, it's nearly 380 years later, somebody in the 2nd century is writing, but he's just recording historical facts at the point, rather than Daniel telling that after this kingdom come, the Medes and the Persians are going to come in, and then after they're done, Rome's going to come in, and then after them, Artaxerxes is going to come in. He pinpointed it with exact detail, only the Lord Jesus Christ, writing here, Daniel, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, would be able to do that. Most critics, and I won't be long here, follow the man, the lead of a man named Porphyry, okay? Porphyry was writing in 233, he lived 233 to about 300 BC. Porphyry at one time confessed Christ, but then he apostatized. And then after he apostatized, he began to vigorously uh, oppose Christianity. He wrote many books, and one of the books that he wrote was titled Against the Christians. And he claimed at Porphyry that Daniel was written in 167 BC during the Maccabean period. Porphyry said that Daniel was a lie who committed forgery 400 years after it was stated to be composed. And what you have from that time of Porphyry is a number of the critics have just reworked his arguments in different categories. Critics conclude that Daniel could not have foreknown the events beforehand, if you will, but simply wrote, as I mentioned, past history. They, they wrote past history, not prophecy, did Daniel. That would make an unknown author, I, I would say, a deceiver. I would say a fraud. Let, let me give you some of the things that they would cite, okay? Uh, critics blast Daniel because it says, I read it earlier, that Nebuchadnezzar took the temple vessels from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his God in Babylon. We read that. Remember there in verse 2, it says that he took the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar in the house of his God and placed his vessels in the treasury of his God. And the critics are going to say, this is something that was never heard of in secular history. It proves that the, the book was written at a later date, written later. Yet, this is what happens. Just the last century, 
Like, I don't need this, and you don't, but I'll tell you how archaeology could work. Just in the last century, an inscription was uncovered stating that Nebuchadnezzar always put his choicest spoils in the house of his God. And the, it, so they said that it was, a, it was something accustomed, peculiar to him. Listen, beloved, the critics were dead wrong. They're always dead wrong. And they uncovered this, and there it was. Nebuchadnezzar took these gods or took these vessels and put them into his own god. Then critics also claimed that Daniel was written at a later date. Look at verse 3, when it says that the king commanded Ashpenaz, okay, whom Daniel calls the chief eunuch. Critics said of this man, Ashpenaz, that he's unknown to history. Yet again, in the last century, the name Ashpenaz was found, by, was found on a brick retrieved from the ruins of ancient Babylon. In fact, you could go to the British Museum today and there is the brick and the brick says, and they date it back to the 6th century, Ashpenaz, master of eunuchs in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is just typical. The critics and the liberals are going to try to move that date and, and here's why. If you move that date then this isn't prophecy. If you move that date, then Daniel didn't speak prophetically. But if you go back to the 6th century, then he's just writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he is absolutely spot on. Even to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ would be born, and I'll show you that in Daniel chapter 9. You say, why do the critics do that? Well, it's easy. It's rationalism. Rationalism came into our country in the 18th century. It is a, it is a denial, beloved, of supernatural miracles and the prophecies in Scripture. If you take out the supernatural and the prophetic, then Daniel becomes a paper lion with no teeth. Listen, I, there's many other things I could go to. You think about Isaiah writing in 700 BC about the suffering servant, 700 years after which he wrote. This is the Word of God. Chris Well, the famous preacher, said a thousand witnesses cry out their confirmation as each artifact and baked brick and ancient inscription adds to its fullest, adds uh, its full measure of testimony to the truth of prophecy. Chris Well said, there has been no spade full of dirt turned up by the archaeological shovel, but that confirms the fact that we read in the first of all apocalypses. Nothing's ever disproved the word of God. And we believe it because it's stated, but every piece of evidence that comes in all cases has affirmed the reliability and the authority of scripture. Listen, Daniel wrote this book. You're holding in your hand the word of God. It comes from a credible source, from a credible man, inspired by God. He wrote it in the sixth century with pinpointed accuracy 
that in many ways is just breathtaking. In fact, in chapter 11 alone, there are 100 prophecies of historical events that were all specifically fulfilled. Listen, to reject the early date for Daniel is to reject the omniscience of God who has foreknowledge of all events. Amen? Listen, the end doesn't surprise God. You say, well, it's chaotic now. Daniel will say he's in perfect control. You say, but look at the, what we've gone through. You should see where the world is heading. And Daniel's going to say he's, of, he's in perfect control. All these facts and many others speak to the credibility and reliability of Daniel as the author as well as the date and the writing of the book. You say, is there an overarching theme in Daniel? Is there an overarching theme and purpose in Daniel? And my answer is yes. I just mentioned it. When all things seem out of control, God was in sovereign control. And I'll put it this way. Over every nation, over every ruler, over every individual until the messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ is set up. And if you get that, you will understand Daniel. Human leaders come and go, okay? But God's kingdom is forever. And no matter how things look, God is in control over every nation and every ruler. Let me just see for a moment if I could fly real high and tell you where we're going in the book. There's just two pieces or two parts to this book. There's chapters 1 through 6. And there's chapters 7 through 12. 1 through 6 is going to be historical. Daniel's life in Babylon. It's going to be biographical. He kind of emerges in many of these accounts. The focus is to show the events in his life. And in 1 through 6, they're chronologically driven. And in each of these chapters, the opening 6, there is a showdown between the kingdom of God on earth and the kingdom of God in heaven. We're going to look at those. Then you got chapters 7 through 12. Rather than it being historical, it's prophetical. What's fascinating about 7 through 12 is that, the, I would say it this way, the prophetical overlaps with the historical. It's almost as though parts of it are just put right on top of what happened, and I will explain that as we go. The focus in 7 through 12 is the Jews under the Gentile domination, and it's written in what we call apocalyptic literature. There are visions Daniel's going to interpret, and they're still in 1 through 6, but predominantly. There are dreams There are symbols, and these visions and dreams come in hard conditions, but they're all divinely interpreted by Daniel, and he's going to tell us what happens at the end of time. He's going to describe for us the seven-year tribulation. He's going to describe what happens after that in chapter 12. In fact, can I do this real quick? I don't know if you'll get it. Uh, The next slide is a chapter-by-chapter breakdown of the book. You got in chapter 1. He's sovereign over it. There's our theme. But it's Daniel and his friends taken into Nebuchadnezzar's court, okay? 
Second, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation of that dream. Remember that giant statue. Then he has Nebuchadnezzar's image. And then they were tossed, were the three friends, into the fiery furnace and they were delivered. Sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4 where he saw himself as, remember that? And then all of a sudden his dream turned into his own judgment as he walked around the White House on all four with nails coming down his fingers, hair down to the back of his shoulders. He, he had taken on something called lycanthropy, and I'll explain that. But he was judged, and then I believe he was converted, and he gives glory to God. Chapter 5, Belshazzar's drunken feast, the writing on the wall, and that very night, B, that means Babylon would fall. Daniel 6, in the lion's den. Daniel, don't, don't let this bother you. He is not a teenager in the lion's den. He's in his 80s. Okay, I don't know. Sometimes we just think of the young teenager. He's in his 80s. It's the, at the end of his career. Look at chapter 7. I, I should go fast here. There's vision of the four beasts, the ancient of days, the son of man, the interpretation, the vision. And these are representative of countries, ram and the goat and the little horn and the interpretation. Chapter 9, it's a key chapter. It's Daniel's prayer, wonderful prayer there. And then his vision of the 70 weeks. And the inter he's going to tell you everything right there. Then there's a disturbing vision by the heavenly messenger. Chapter 11, we get to this man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a real man in that, you know, year 260 around there, a real man. But we also believe that beyond that man that was true in history is the future Antichrist. I want to tell you what Daniel says about the Antichrist. Chapter 12 is the great tribulation and the future resurrection of the faithful. Listen, beloved, God is sovereign. And what Daniel reveals is the Gentile rule through human history, beginning here at captivity, all the way until the greatest ruler and king, Messiah, will crush all rulers and establish his coming kingdom. So I say, let's go. Let me turn you right away to chapter 1, okay? Here's chapter 1, and it will run through verse 1 all the way through verse 21. And I've given it this tag, God's sovereignty on display in the life of Daniel and his friends in the king's court, okay? There's our theme running through chapter 1, and there's two features. The first one is Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power is at the hand of a sovereign God in verses 1 and 2. His rise to power is at the hand of a sovereign God. Now, let me just explain something so you know where we are in the book, okay? When we talk about they were taken away to Babylon, you already remember that the northern kingdom in 722 was exiled. It means that they were banished and uh, Assyria took them over in 722. And so for about a hundred years, the southern kingdom was holding out a few good kings and many bad kings. But what you want to understand as we get to verses 1 and 2 is that the southern kingdom 
suffered its first defeat in 605 BC. There's three of these, okay? They suffered their first defeat in 605 BC under the reign of Jehoiakim. If you want to read about him, you can in 2 Kings 24. And at that first captivity is when Daniel was taken, okay? So Daniel and his friends were taken in 605. Uh, they left, you know, the rest of the nation there. They were now under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel himself at 605 is exiled into Babylon. He's 15. I, I, I'm just struck by it. What if that was your 15-year-old? They come, he besieges the city, okay? He comes, he takes it, and he took some of the vessels, but we also know that he, he took some of the captives as chapter one, but he's 15 years old. And it's not just a family that's moving. He is ripped away, whereas Daniel and his friends, to be indoctrinated in a pagan culture for this purpose to influence other Jews. That's why they brought him. They got the wisest, the best looking, the best educated. Why? Because they knew, Nebuchadnezzar did, he wanted them to educate and bring up the other Jewish people that they took into captivity. So he's taken to Babylon. It's about 500 miles away, Jerusalem to Babylon, as the crow flies. And what the story is in history is that Nebuchadnezzar, after defeating the country of Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish, was on his way to it or on his way home, and he sacked Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem already was under Egypt, so when he took Carchemish, he just went through Jerusalem, sacked it, he took prisoners. And at this point in 605 BC, Babylon now ruled the world. But there's a second deportation, okay? This happened in waves, at least at the beginning. The second deportation was the first, that king at the end there, Jehoiakim, dies. He's succeeded by his son, don't get confused, Jehoiakim, okay? So Jehoiakim dies. His son now is put on at least ruling Israel, but Babylon owns it. And Jehoiakim didn't like the, the pressure that was put on Jerusalem. And so even in, though they're a vassal state, he rebels. So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar says, you're going to rebel? Then I'm going to sack you again. Second deportation. First 605, second one is 597. Jehoiakim and 10,000 others were taken. And at the second deportation, and I'm looking at 2 Kings 24, they took leaders, they took princes, they took priests, and they also took the prophet Ezekiel. So Jerusalem's still there. I mean, they've been stripped of some of their people, some of the vessels. Now they take, now the king himself, and then they put another puppet king in there. But then there's one more. There's the third and final deportation. And when I say the third and final deportation, this happened in 586. 
and it was complete under the reign of a man by the name of Zedekiah. And when Nebuchadnezzar came in this third time, just imagine what the Jewish people are looking at. They destroyed the city. They burned it. They razed it. At that third deportation, they destroyed the temple. This is 2 Kings 24. Now, what's interesting about that third deportation, Daniel's in the king's court, right? Back at the first one. That's 19 years later. So he's probably somewhere in his mid-30s when Jerusalem is completely snuffed out. So I give you a little bit of a history there to know where we are. But on this third deportation, to give you a little bit of an idea of Nebuchadnezzar, he captured Zedekiah, okay, then slaughtered Zedekiah's own sons right before his eyes, then he promptly burned out Zedekiah's eyes. And so the last thing that Zedekiah saw with his eyes was his own sons murdered right before him. I mean, this is Israel. This is God, the apple of his eye, taken by a foreign king, killing Zedekiah. In fact, in Werner Keller's book, excuse the frankness of this, his book is called The Bible is History, and it spoke of a picture found on a wall in an archaeological dig of a king kneeling on the ground and a sword being pushed through his eyes. They also showed in this picture that was unearthed people with rings in their lips because the prophets said when they would take them into captivity, they would do so by hooks in their lips. It was one of the ways they humiliated and dragged prisoners away was by putting these rings into their lips and tying them to ropes and pulling them along by their lips. I mean, this, I mean, what do you say to this? They had been Israel as a country, then it divided. And now this, there's nothing left. At least a few people are left in 800 years they were in the promised land but listen beloved what cannot be missed is this is not Nebuchadnezzar's military power this is not just some mighty engine of a military machine this is what Daniel wants you to see look at it in verse Two, he besieged it at the end of verse 1 1, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, first deportation, king of Judah, into his what? Hand. God did this. God did this. God was over this. It's amazing. Listen, Daniel is, though this would be contrary, it's not primarily a book about human characters. It's not about Daniel. It's a great man. 
It's not about Shadrach. It's not about Meshach. It's not about Abednego. It's about God's sovereignty over all governments, all nations, all rulers. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. In fact, let me just show you this sovereignty. Look in chapter 2, just for a second, in verse 21, and certainly we'll go back in a fuller way. But in 2.21, here, go back to 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. He, God, changes times and seasons. He, staggering removes kings and sets up what? Kings. They're all established by God. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Go down to chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Praise God. Look over at chapter 4 just for a moment. At the beginning of chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar will praise God at the end, but King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, 4-1, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom, and here it is again, is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I believe after Nebuchadnezzar was converted, would you look over at chapter 4 in verse 34, at the end of the days, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed, and there's that phrase again, the most high, and praised him and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can, say, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Listen, just to you this morning, God is the great king, amen? Right now, he is a great king. As I speak, war rages in Ukraine. And do you ever just watch, look at the news and go, why is there so much evil in the world? It's because man's heart is dark. But through it all, God is in control. It's God who's running the universe, not Nebuchadnezzar, not China. You might even ask, hey, this is his people. Was God powerless to prevent this? And the answer is no, not at all. Nebuchadnezzar is the human instrument of judgment on Jerusalem. 
But God has done this to his own people and to his own city. You say, well, what happened? Look back in 1-2. He besieges it. The Lord gives Nebuchadnezzar into his hand. And, and into his hand goes some of the vessels of the house of God. Imagine going into the beautiful, majestic temple that was built by Solomon and he's ransacking the village really on all three of deportations, but he takes the vessels. It doesn't say which ones. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels of the tre- in the treasury of his God. Listen, when you would take vessels from one kingdom from another, it represented the supremacy of a deity, of a conquering nation, of the gods, of the conquered nation that it just sacked. I mean, if a god in their thinking couldn't defend his own temple, then he was powerless. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar kind of got his chest a little higher. He took those vessels and he probably put them into the house of his God. He had like 50 temples with multiple deities. We think he probably put it in the temple to Bel Merodach, which is the God Marduk, so that Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, I conquered, and not only did I conquer Yahweh's people, but I conquered Yahweh himself. But God's going to say, oh, no, no. He's still in perfect control, was then, is now. It says, do you see this in verse two? He brought them to the land of, interesting, I think a chosen word, into the land of Shinar. Where is Shinar? Well, we understand we're in this context. It's Babylon, 50 miles, if you will, south of present-day Baghdad. He takes these vessels, he puts them in Shinar, 50 miles south of even Baghdad, Iraq itself today. But even more than that, Shinar is the place, it's called Shinar in Genesis 11, of the Tower of what? Babel. That was in Shinar. In the scripture, it is a place of wickedness. In the scripture, it is a place of opposition to God. He sends them, beloved, into the seat of idolatry. And from a human perspective, this appears to be a great victory over both Israel and Yahweh. However, the text states, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, emphasizing it was God's control. You you might not be able to see it here, but look at verse two, when it says, and the Lord gave. There's a number of names for the Lord. The most familiar one would be Yahweh. And you would tend to think that verse two would see, and Yahweh, or Jehovah, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's not the word. Yahweh is his personal name. It says here that Adonai gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into 
into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Adonai, what does that mean? Yahweh is the personal name for God. Adonai literally means the sovereign one. Adonai gave name and delivered over Jehoiakim and Judah, not Nebuchadnezzar, not his military power, but it was God's judgment upon Judah, listen, for their disobedience and their idolatry. No, I just said something there that was key. It's not just his sovereignty. They were utterly and absolutely disobedient. That's a small word. Utterly idolatrous. And they just for years and years did not listen. And so God did this to his people and he used a wicked pagan king to accomplish his greater purpose. Interesting. Say why? Because I think we think God should show up every time and defeat his enemies and rescue his people. We think sometimes that God gets glory when everyone sees how powerful he is, like in Exodus, and he did that. Yet, God often chooses to operate within the limitations of his creation rather than wowing the world with supernatural acts. The restraining of his power, even right now, is likely a mystery to us. But as are his reasons for allowing, even today, evil tyrants to rule, right? But his wisdom runs counter to our expectation. And what Daniel's going to remind you week after week is that in spite of how things appear, God is in control. Until his kingdom comes, beloved, here's the word today, you just need to trust him. Listen, if he wanted to, he could wipe the planet off the face of the earth if he chose, but in his wisdom, he chooses not to. He is all powerful and all wise. Listen, despite what the headlines say, okay? The truth is, this nation imploded from within. It was over a hundred years prior to this that Isaiah was prophesying the fall. And then Jeremiah prophesied to the last five kings of Judah. And I'll tell you more about that in two weeks. Because next week we got Dr. Robert Godfrey with us at the end of the League and Air Conference. Would you bow your head with me? I will call the worship team back up.